This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Hi, I'm Steve Sharetta, Senior Managing Editor at Knowledge at Wharton, and I'd like to welcome Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel to this podcast. Professor Siegel will be well-known to listeners as a frequent guest on various television shows, particularly CNBC, uh, to analyze financial markets and economic trends. Uh, very good to have you back, Professor. Steve, I'm happy to be here. So, so just looking at today's market, so here we are on July 9th, and uh, they seem to be feeling a little more confident despite the looming trade war. I'm going to assume that has something to do with the good economic numbers that have been coming out, particularly, I, I guess, GDP is looking reasonably good, um, employment and so but forth. The, the Friday employment report was a blockbuster. It yeah. was really about as good as it gets. Uh, you had strong payroll growth, but you also had people moving into the labor market. A participation rate uh, jumped up. That's a rate that I look at very closely. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it, we need more. If, if we're not going to have the Fed hiking aggressively, we need more people entering the labor force because the demand for labor is uh, 200,000 plus a month. And we just don't, the natural supply from population growth and other factors is only 100,000. So unless we have people entering in a labor force, it's just going to get a tighter and tighter labor market, which is going to, you know, prompt the Fed to tighten. So it was really a good report. I think, the you know, the good markets that, you know, we've had since that report are definitely tied to that report and not really to any new trade developments, which uh, there hasn't been too much just very recently. So it's uh, it, it's going to, in your view, take some pressure off the Fed as as they look towards... Absolutely. I mean, again, this is only this is only one month, uh, uh, and there are you know the 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 participation rate, the unemployment rate. uh, Those measures are from what's called the household survey, which is more volatile, Um, and so we could see a reversal next month. But it's a it's a definite move uh, in 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 the right direction. If we get more participation, the Fed will not uh, tighten. Probably not even tighten four times. I still think the Fed will tighten four times this year, mm-hmm. um, but uh, certainly Friday's news, uh, you know, uh, dialed back mm-hmm. uh, that probability a bit. So, and oddly, there was a, a actually increase in the unemployment rate, which yeah. is sort of a statistical. Which is actually, quirk. believe it or not, good news at this point because uh-huh. unemployment is so low um, that uh, we need more breathing space. Uh, where there are, you know, people that firms can employ without bidding up their wages, because that's what the Fed is really looking at. I mean, uh, higher unemployment is no good when the unemployment rate is eight, nine, ten percent, but when it's down below four, um, you don't want that unemployment rate to keep on going down, because that inevitably has sparked in- inflation. So there's a there's an interesting thing connected with what you were just talking about. So you've got. Um, strong employment numbers, as, as you're talking about, uh, and that I, I think you're referring to the the uh, worries in some circles that that can lead to lead to wage led inflation, which right. then gets a reaction from the Fed. So here's the thing, though: if you've got a, a, a workforce, middle class workforce that hasn't had a raise in, I've heard, you know, 30 years, 40 years, take your pick after you account for inflation, and if the 
a, a typical way for, for people to get raises is when the labor pool tightens because there's a lot of demand for labor, that bids up wages. Uh, but if every time that starts to happen, the Fed takes away the punch bowl, to use an old expression, right, and, and raises interest rates to, to tone down the economy, people are never going to get a raise. Is that right? Well, the, the, what we want is wages to go up because of productivity. Productivity is by far the most important influence on wages after inflation. And correlation is like over 90% over longer-term periods. And unfortunately, although the economic recovery that started nine years ago uh, has been very good in terms of jobs created, it has been very poor in terms of productivity growth. It has, in fact, been the poorest productivity growth that we've had in any economic recovery in the post-World War II period. Now, you said why, and, and economists don't really know all the reasons why uh, productivity growth has been so. Is it the younger workforce that isn't as experienced as baby boomers that are uh, retiring? Is it that we, we're on the verge of new technologies but not yet in them? Uh, you know, uh, uh, basically we've, we've pumped the Internet and, and the PCs for what uh, improvement it can get and everything else like AI and robotics and, uh, you know, uh, self-driving cars is in the wings but not here, nanotechnology. These are things that are on the border but not quite here. We, we don't we're, – we're in a, a lull. We're in a terrible lull, and that's one of the reasons why wages after inflation have not risen uh, as they should have uh, during this economic recovery. It's so interesting what you're saying because, we, you know, we, we live in a sea of media that talks about innovation and this new app and that new app, and yet – what you're saying is, at, you know, at the heart of all that, what's going on today is really just refinements on what's been exactly. going on and no real breakthroughs Little, that are going to change our, things. Our, yeah, our games are getting better on our iPhones. Uh-huh. And we're, we're playing more time on that. But in terms of massive shifts of productivity, uh, really there haven't been. So I, and, and actually in factory techniques and manufacturing, I've seen some shocking statistics that actually have shown a slight decrease in productivity, and that used to be the area where you know agriculture and manufacturing were, were the cornerstones of productivity increase, and it's really died. We just don't have techniques now that are producing it, uh, you know, uh, better and faster. Uh, again, a low. Uh, again, it, it, people say you know this is a low between major technologies. Um, and uh, other people are not sure. I mean, there's there's productivity pessimists such as Robert Gordon, professor at Northwestern University, who, who really thinks those best years are, are basically past. We're going to have slow productivity growth for the next 20 years. Big debate among economists about it. So and, and another uh, something that flows from that, we, we talked about this at least once before, and that is the labor participation rate, which is right now I think just under 63 percent and is – um, stationary, basically. Yeah, and it's flat still, over the last. So let's talk a little bit about the broad it's, trends. Right, it's on, still on below that. where it was before the financial crisis. Is, is the point I was going to raise. So the labor particip. Let, let's take a big review on the labor participation, so people can see what the big trends are. Labor participation rate in the United States rose dramatically from 1950 to. To 2000. This is the percent of the, of, of the available of the, population. Uh, of those 65, mm-hmm. between 16 and 65 okay. that are really are working. Mm-hmm. Um, and it rose dramatically, and it was all because of women. 
The women participation rate in the 50s was very poor, and you know, women moved in, importantly, in the labor force over the next 50 years. Their participation rate basically peaked out in 2000, but the male participation rate has continued to, to go down. Part of that is the baby boomers that are definitely retiring, but even participation rates among prime males has gone down Um uh, lack of opportunities, uh, preparing for the type of jobs that are available now, a discouragement. I mean, a lot of, uh, of increase in disability, actually, right after the financial crisis uh, that has drawn people out of the workforce. There's a lot of factors there. Um, but economists say because of baby boomers, we're now going to be in a long-term downtrend. Uh, what happened is from 2000, uh, right, right after the financial crisis, it dropped. Um, much faster. We've leveled out over the last three or four years, and now we're at where economists predicted it to be in 2000. So, but we need that to not only level off, but actually increase Mm -hmm. if we're going to continue to handle the 200,000 job growth, which has been really this nine-year recovery has averaged over 200,000 jobs. So unless the Fed tightens up to get it down to 100,000, which is population, we're going to get tighter and tighter labor markets unless we get motivate these people that are, you know, old enough to, to, to be in working but are not actively looking for jobs to say, I want to get a job now. Let's get to a topic I'm sure everyone's waiting for, and that is what you think is going to happen to markets. I'm thinking specifically over the next few weeks where summer is typically, you know, a, a kind of sleepy time and that sort of thing. But also want to point out, uh, that at the beginning of the year, when we when we chatted about where the market was going to be, you said uh, between zero and and down ten percent for the year. I think and it was zero and up ten. Up okay. I think I okay. I think I said it was going to be a much rougher year. Okay. Than it was in two thousand seventeen, and I oh. think I predicted zero to ten percent okay. growth for the whole year, and I'm still there. And uh, we, we've just been about there, right? Yeah, yeah, I, was going, I was going to say. Been, uh, I said it was going to be a tougher year, yeah, yeah. Uh, but but not. Uh, now, again, even, you know, it's so hard to predict the short stock market in the short run. We all know. I mean, um, people say, oh, Jeremy, that's a wide – I say that's not even one standard deviation of what the stock market can do uh, in, in a year. So uh, there's, can, there can be a lot of volatility. Uh, the main challenges to the stock market, as I said, and I still believe, are higher interest rates from the Fed. Mm-hmm. The second was uh, political challenges. Um, that uh, I thought, for instance, Trump will face as time goes on. I mean, you know, I still think the Democrats are favored, although it's not overwhelmingly, to take the House of Representatives. What will that do? Um, the trade war has come up as a threat, and we can talk about the, uh, that uh, later. Um, so rising interest rates, those political uncertainties, and also it is my feeling that the projections of 2009, we had a good jump in earnings 2018, and a lot of that is, of course, the corporate tax cut. I'm looking at 2019. I think the jumps are too big. Uh, I think that uh, analysts are going to be scaling back some of their 2019 uh, projections second half of the year, and that's going to also add pressure to the stock market. And that's why I don't think this is going to be a great year. It's not going to be a terrible year. Mm Uh, though, for for stocks uh, overall. There have been a lot of things written about stock buybacks and the effects that they 
may be having on stock prices. There's been a lot of money going into it. You've had uh, many years of low interest rates. Companies have been able to borrow. So there's a, there's a, th- a thought out there that that's kind of what, uh, I guess, unrealistically holding uh, stock prices yeah. up no, right now. No, no, stock buybacks over stock buybacks are about two and a half percent of market value. So at most two and a half percent of a gain. And we've had gains of, you know, in 2017 of, you know, almost 20 percent. Our, our, the, uh, the gains and losses year to year overwhelm uh, the buybacks uh, that are actually there. Also, I, I think that I, I do definitely believe that strong corporate profits are definitely a motivation for buybacks. The interest rates, a, a lot of firms don't have to borrow. Now, some of them do anyways. Um, you know, Apple has often said it's borrowed because of the way it arranges its corporate assets, as you know, being held in Ireland and all the rest. Mm-hmm. It had to borrow abroad and not use the money there. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it was going to be taxed. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, um, uh, firms have not had to borrow too much for the buyback. Mm-hmm. They, uh, their earnings have more than covered uh, the buybacks. Uh, buybacks became very popular um, in the 1980s for a number of reasons. One is the SEC finally made them easier to do. There was some question of legality of buying back, and they said you can buy back. Secondly, um, the tax on dividends. If you buy back, it's a capital gain, and you don't pay a capital gains tax until you sell. So a lot of investors – now, why do you think Warren Buffett, for instance, never pays a dividend on, on Berkshire Hathaway? He says, I don't want my people to be subject to tax. Uh, I want it to keep on going up in price, and if and when they sell, they'll have to pay a capital gains tax. Many of them are going to you know, give it to charity, and it'll never be taxed. So the, the taxes on dividends – is another factor. And the third factor, by the way, is man, uh, is the predominance of management and employee stock options. Mm-hmm. You you want the stock to go up rather than to pay a dividend. I mean, you could do, you know, you pay a dividend, it's good if you're owning shares, but if you have options, it's good to buy it back. Mm-hmm. So as the, the big increase in stock options over the last 30 years has been another force motivating the buybacks. But don't you know, don't overstate the importance of buybacks. They're only one, you know, component of of the return on stocks. I mean, corporate earnings, interest rates, and other things really weigh up and down on stocks far more than uh, the amount of buybacks. Uh, another thing I want to ask you about, which has been getting some attention, is this notion of the inverted yield curve, because I think statistically over many decades it's been shown to be uh, a, a precursor that there's going yes. to be a rese- recession ahead doesn't tell us exactly when that's going to happen. Could be six months, could be two years, but that it's been a fairly accurate. It, it has been. In indicator. fact, I teach my class, my students, that if you're going to take one variable, by far the, the single best indicator of an upcoming uh, recession is the inversion. So here of we're the getting. It, it looks like I mean we've been heading there pretty mm-hmm. rapidly recently. It looks like we're almost there. Can you tell? Okay. Our our listeners and readers, just briefly, what that inverted, what is it? What okay. is it? And and what does it mean? And, and if we cross the the Rubicon, the so to speak, okay. or, does that mean we're going to have a recession? Yes, sometime soon. Yeah, so the yield curve refers to the difference between long term rates and short term rates. And normally, long term rates are are higher. You know, you want to borrow long term, 
there's more you know risk and and, and as a result you have to pay higher normally they're 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 long term uh that they're, they're higher than short term rates but occasionally through history uh particularly as the central bank is trying to slow the economy they push short term rates up to and sometimes exceeding uh, the long term rates and particularly if long term investors see trouble ahead you know, in the economy, they're going to be buying bonds because they're going to say economic demand is going to be down, inflation is going to be down, and they start buying the bonds. And so the rate on long go below short. That's called an inversion of the term structure. And, and yes, uh, before all the, I think, 13 recessions we've had in the post-war period, we have had an inversion that has been anywhere from six months to 18 months beforehand. Now, the, the people say long and short-term rates. I, I hear a lot about the difference between the, the 10-year bond and the two-year bond. Honestly, I think the best is the difference between the 10-year bond and the 90-day Treasury bill. Oh, okay. yeah, because a short-term, really, two years is not really short-term. Right, I mean, right. uh, yeah, that's, you know, when people buy you know, short-term assets, it's usually less than a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, that spread right now is uh, just under one percentage point about 90 basis points. Uh, We say 100 basis points is one percentage point, 90. Now, that is lower, that spread, than the average uh, from 1950 to the present. But interestingly enough, it is not lower than the average uh, in a low interest rate and low inflation environment such as we had in the 1950s and 1960s. So I, my feeling is that people are jumping the gun a little bit too fast on this and worrying about it. They're comparing it to the average spread that we saw in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, which was a much higher inflation period, a much more higher interest rate period. In a low inflation, low interest rate period, actually the average spread between the 90-day bill and the 10-year bond has been around 70 basis points to 80 and we're still a little bit above that. So, yes, we are moving that down, mm-hmm. but we are not flat uh, by any means. I would not put out uh, the warning signal. And most importantly, the Fed knows about this signal. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to continue to raise short-term rates if the long-term rate does not rise with it, because that will tell the Fed that there are people worrying about the economy. They don't think it's as strong as the Fed does. They're keeping that long-term rate stable, and that's a signal to the people at the Fed. Fortunately, everyone at the Fed knows this signal, too. So I don't think they're going to push it uh, as far as uh, some people fear uh, that they will. So uh, I think actually, as I did, uh, I think in our earlier one, I, I think the long-term rate's going up. Mm-hmm. I, I said I thought it would end the year at three and a quarter percent. So uh, as a result, the Fed will will push above two, but there'll still be a, a good percentage point between that short-term rate and that long-term rate. So uh, I, I want to expand on that a little bit and take a, a little bit more of a longer-term view in the sense that uh, a broader view, I should say, and that is that Many, many uh, experts in finance and economics have said over the years that uh, somewhere in the world, on average, every seven, eight, nine, ten years or so, there is a major financial crisis of some sort. It could be a currency crisis. It could be an interest rate crisis. Um, and so we've had this this uh, almost Goldilocks period uh, where we had this horrible crisis, but uh, the, the, there has been pretty steady growth almost worldwide, I guess, since then. And so that raises the question 
Um, will that will that average that people talk about apply one day soon? Well, you can uh, always, you know some people say what's well, do with the average of the uh, economic expansions is only about six years, and we're already nine years into this expansion. The longest expansion U.S. post-war post-World War II history has been 10 years from 1990 to 2000. We are one year away from the longest expansion U.S. history. Um, could it go longer? Yeah. There are countries that have gone longer. Uh, Britain went 18 years between 1990 and 2008. Uh, Australia went over 20 years. Uh, they didn't actually have a recession during the financial crisis. Um, so as a result, um, it is possible to have it longer. Our Economic um, uh, cycles are getting longer. Um, actually, I was having we were having a discussion at our lunch table about that today, and a lot of it has to do, by the way, with the fact we're more a service-oriented economy than a production economy, which has shorter cycles. Um, is there going to be a crisis around the world once every so often? Of course, we had the mother of all crises nine years ago. So in a way, we need a rest. Mm -hmm. um, no one's – I mean, yeah, I don't think there's I – mean, people thought Bitcoin is a bubble, and I did think it was a bubble, but it was nowhere near and big enough, mm -hmm. even in, in any conception, mm -hmm. that it's breaking – could cause a economic recession. There are a few other stocks that you could argue are too high, but generally there are no bubbles now around the world. Can there be bubbles? Yeah, that don't affect the United States. The 1997 emerging market crisis, you might remember that, when the attack on the Thai baht, the Indonesian rupee, and many other currencies in Southeast Asia, uh, even in Hong Kong, um, really uh, caused the U.S. stock market to really take a dive. We did not have a recession in 1997. We were able uh, – the Fed moved quickly. We insulated our, ourselves from that recession. So sometimes even if there is a crisis outside the United States, doesn't necessarily mean there will be a crisis uh, or a recession in the United States. So this time it's a little bit different. <laughs> uh, it's always a little bit different. <laughs> Nothing is exactly a carbon okay. copy of of what we had before. Mm -hmm. We are, you know, my biggest danger is that again the pool of labor is getting too tight. Mm -hmm. The Fed will tighten because it mm -hmm. sees labor markets getting tight, and that means that wages are going to be bid up. And again, being bid up because of productivity growth is good, but being bid up just mm -hmm. because we need you, your productivity is just that there's not enough workers. Um, that's not good, mm -hmm. uh, um, and and that's what uh, causes inflation because those higher costs mm -hmm. are then pushed onto the consumer in terms of higher inflation. If you had to choose uh, the things that were most worrisome for you for the for the macroeconomic economy in in the U.S. primarily, but in the world too, what would it be? I, I mean, I mean, the trade war would be an obvious one right now, yeah. I guess. Yeah, the trade war is a threat. It's still a low. The stock market still thinks the low probability a threat. I think they are right, mm -hmm. but low probability is not zero probability of a threat. Um, uh, so that's a wild card, mm -hmm. and um, you know no one knows exactly how that's going to turn out. Although uh, my feeling is is that Trump is not going to push it so far as that it does become a major issue, mainly because uh, we know from his past tweets that he loves the stock market. And if he loves the stock market, one way to keep it going up is not by engaging in a trade war. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, you, uh, we'll, we'll see how uh, he wants to push it to a brink, which is short of something that would really cause a downturn in stock. Now, he may 
you know, who knows? I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's just uh, uh, one of my ways of, 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 of looking at it and saying it's a low-probability event. But again, as I say, a low-probability event is not a zero-probability event. Outside of that, uh, you know, uh, again, the, the biggest threat is that the labor market gets tight fa- much faster than the Fed even anticipates generating inflationary wage gains. The Fed then tightens faster, considerably faster than the market expects, driving up interest rates, and that that would certainly put pressure on stocks. So if, you know, one of the central obstacles I'm seeing here that you're talking about is productivity. And so what could be done to uh, increase productivity numbers. Well, as I said, the product, uh, we, you know, we we as economists don't know all the reasons why productivity has been so poor the last eight or nine years. Actually, even extending to even before the financial crisis, mm-hmm. uh, there was uh, a, a dip in, in productivity. So, if you're not, you know, absolutely certain, it's hard to, to say what you can do mm-hmm. to cor- correct it. Um, uh, obvious in in one sense. Um, uh, I I do agree with Trump that there were too many regulations, and I think that that did slow down some productivity growth because people had to be hired to manage all sorts of rules and regulations. That doesn't put out more output. So to the sense that some of those regulations can be eased, uh, that would also uh, improve productivity. Also improve productivity if we did a better job at, education, at educating the workforce towards the type of jobs that are – around uh, in the 2010s, um, and uh, I'm not too sure whether we are doing a good job on that. In fact, you know, by by international standards, uh, you know, our, our graduates of high schools and primary schools are doing very poorly. Our graduates of college are doing well, and graduates go particularly well, but um, we're not doing a good job at educating in the middle and lower and of of our spectrum, we we need to improve uh, that. Uh, the other the other factor is just to wait till some new technology really comes in and really begins to allow us to produce a lot more output with uh, you know less workers, and then that's will raise wages and increase the productivity growth. What haven't we talked about that would be important for people to think about? Oh, I think. I think we've talked about most of the important things. We should talk about that earnings season, of course. Is oh, yeah. yeah. So it's it, you're right in the sense of being a long summer, which is in the doldrums. But yeah. we are going to be getting this week and next week uh, earnings um, estimates in the second quarter and uh, guidance for the four quarters and into 2019. I don't. I think it's too early. I, I mentioned at the beginning of our program that I think 2019 is too. Early, some CEOs will give 2019 guidance, not many, until uh, they could do the second half of the year, um, which will start, you know, after in, in October for the, for the third quarter. Uh, but um, I think that uh, you're going to see that that move individually. And then, of course, you're again, the movements of trade are very important. And so point counterpoint, how that works out is is going to move stocks this summer. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. If you liked what you hear and you would like more knowledge, please join us at our Knowledge at Wharton website at knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.edu.
www.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.